Well, Andrew, welcome. Thank you. It says here we're up to Series 6. Yeah, it's a misprint, surely. <laughs> we thought we'd do it. We thought we'd do a Series of 3. We did. Um, and we don't know when we're going to stop. <laughs> um, it reminds me of Ezra Pound's Cantos. Um, he wrote a series of Cantos poems and um, nobody knew when he was going to stop. Uh, uh, he didn't either. Uh, they thought he'd stop at 50 but he kept going and then he got up into the high 80s and they thought 100 has got to be the, uh, the goal until number 101 came out and the only thing that stopped it was his death. So I think you're frightening the audience. <laughs> um, so I thought since we did talk number five, yeah. um, that was before the in July. That was before the David Bentley Hart conference, and, and I thought since we we've all probably lost track to some extent of uh, where we've been, uh, I'd begin with a, a summary of it. I think that um, we're framing this as an inquiry. So it's a developing argument, and uh, so <coughs> when you are developing an argument, sometimes it's clearer looking backwards than it is looking forwards. Absolutely. <laughs> there are a few cul-de-sacs. There are a few cul-de-sacs. Uh, but just generally our goal was to critique the dominant metaphor of penal substitutionary atonement um, called PSA by people. Now whether people know that particular phrase or not, it's very dominant in the Protestant world. Yeah. Um, and um, it's such a strong mental model of uh, criminal code, someone paying the price on our behalf, paying the price to God the Father and so on. Um, so um, we looked at that mental model and its inadequacies. Um, that's where we begin. Uh, I, since our last talk, I read an article about a Baptist minister. I told you the story. Who um, the article was why I'll never mm. uh, preach on penal substitution again. And uh, it's a true story, uh, both the Baptist minister's story and the, the story he used. He used an analogy to describe the redemptive model. And the analogy was from um, a uh, Nazi concentration camp during the Second World War. So the story he told was true. And the story was this, that um, a prisoner escaped from this particular compound and the Nazi commandant um, had a rule, which was that if somebody escaped, he would execute the next day 10 inmates. So they line up the everybody and read the names out of the people to be executed. Uh, they got to number 10 and the guy broke down and pleaded for mercy because he said, I'm young and I've got a family. An older Jew who was in his 60s uh, and was a mentor of people, uh, much loved in the camp, stepped forward and eyeballed the commandant and said, I want to take his place. The Commandant was shocked but eventually after they debated it he agreed and it happened. Um, the older man got shot 
as the tenth victim. Uh, the story, that story was told by the young young man who broke down. Um, you know, he has a picture of the older man and his house, like, and so on, remembering it. But anyway, the Baptist minister told the story, and of course, the story was a story of substitution. You know, where the man who stepped forward and uh, was uh, a picture of Christ stepping forward on our behalf, and so he preached the sermon, and he went back into his um, office mm -hmm. afterwards and he felt really, really uneasy. And then it struck him that he hadn't taken the analogy far enough, uh, that God, the Father, was the commandant. Yeah. And, um, and then he recognised how flawed the whole construct was. Mm. It's a pretty good story. Yeah, and I think over time that that recursive process is what's happened. People have wanted to illustrate in sermons emotionally penal substitution atonement and sometimes the, the illustrations are quite painful and and set you off on a course that you, you don't want to go because you do end up having a change in your, in your doctrine of God. And I, I think some of the illustrations pour back into our theology and they're just illustrations. They're not Bible. It's just illustrations that people have used end up feedbacking into it. Feed, feed into the Bible. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think what you've said there is very significant. That What's critical behind this is the nature of the character of God that's implied. Yeah. Um, and I think that particular story makes it stark. Anyway, now, the approach we've taken, um, which is a typical gospel conversations approach, is, well, to rethink this, um, if you go into what I call, you know, Bible verse ping pong or something like that, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's too short-term, the thinking. So we've stepped right back and widened the problem and, and reframed the question um, around creation. Um, we've said that the, that penal substitutionary atonement model really is a model that takes Genesis 3 as the opening of the uh, gospel. But if you go back to Genesis 1 and start with creation and said, no, no, the gospel starts with Genesis 1. So where does the cross fit in with Genesis 1? Hence the title of our series is Cross and Creation. And uh, one of the earlier points we make, made is that there's probably two strands of theology, one that's very creation-based, much more benevolent in its view of the whole project of creation, one that's much more um, sin-based, judicial, um, and there's a tension between the two of them. Um, if you're in the Protestant Reformed kind of sin-based world, then you can look across and critique the creational world and say, yeah, where's the cross in that? It's just a benevolent view. And then equally, if you're on the creational side, you can say it was a very dark view of God. I mean, our goal was to sort of bring them together. Hmm. Um, it's, I think it's very Western Eastern, isn't it? It's very Western Eastern. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, not the, just Protestant. Yes, it's very Western Eastern. The Eastern Church uh, and Eastern Church Fathers were much more in the creational camp. Hmm. Um, anyway, we're there too, I think, proudly. Uh, so. The, the, rather than the question being how will God handle the problem of sin, the question is something along the line of, you know, what's inherent? 
problematic in creation? What's the frustrated purpose in creation for which the cross might be yeah. the answer? Uh, something like that. Um, so I think uh, we reframed the situation, um, stretched the situation in um, three critical ways. First of all, that question immediately lifts the scale from individual to cosmic. I mean, one of the, I think, um, assumptions, it's an unconscious assumption behind the penal substitutionary model, it's, it's an individual destiny. Yeah. Um, one by one by one by one, people have to be accounted. Whereas, if you start in Genesis 1, the, the, that's, the, the question is cosmic. What's God's interest in the cosmos? Um, and that's quite uh, important, um, obviously. The second stretch, and this is stuff we've covered, but um, I think it's, it's, uh, it's good to get our mind back into that paradigm in order to come at the cross with new eyes, is the cosmos is not just treated in the Bible as, or in Greek philosophy as a material object like the universe. Mm. It is anthropic. So the cosmos is, it's an anthropocentric view of the cosmos. Humanity, whatever humanity does, seems to reverberate throughout the whole mm. of, of the cosmos. So that's the second thing. So in saving us, he'll be saving the cosmos and vice versa. And I think since we last spoke, we've had David Bentley Hart on the What Does It Mean to Be Human series, and he's really enriched that with Maximus's yep. theory of cosmic liturgy. Um, then the final stretching, which I think will lead more into the nature of the cross, is, well, um, what's the nature of the dominion that or relationship God has given man. What's the nature of that dominion and rule? So those are some of the... Um, that led us to say, essentially, we then went into Genesis 3 from there, reframing Genesis 3, not so much as the fall, as mission failure. Mission failure, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so five talks, I can skip through them. I mean, the first one pretty well did what we're talking about. Yep. And... Um, let's go back to Genesis 1 and think that through along the lines I've just mentioned. Then the second talk uh, was where we reframed sin and the fall. And you reframed it for us. Can you just recapitulate that? Because I think that's quite significant, quite breathtaking. Yeah, when, when you look at Genesis 3, the, the word sin's not used. And if you, if you look what happens, um, well... Before that, if, if you look at some of your, your theological um, texts, they'll say we broke God's, or Adam broke God's moral law that was given to him. But there's none of that actually in the text. All you see in the text is that Adam doesn't trust that God intended good toward him and, and gets an alternate view and follows an alternate view. So the, the real, what we call the sin that occurs in Genesis 3 is, is just not choosing to trust God okay. intends good. Now that's powerful because normally I had imagined and heard the sin is pride, arrogance, independence, rebellion. I think what you've just said is very, very significant. The text, the original text doesn't use sin. 
all that I'd add to it, which to me is significant, and I think it'll come through the Dominion thing, is that there's another player there, which is Satan. Absolutely. And the way that I sometimes frame it is that Adam switched conversations. Um, he didn't just get the idea that God didn't intend good from his own thinking. Mm -hmm. It was a conversation uh, implanted in him by Satan. So the idea of a... Um, I, in past talks many years ago, I, I, I talked about Genesis 3 perhaps better as the takeover, not just yeah. the fall. So that was... That was, that was reframing. And that's the way we expressed dominion, or at least Adam expressed dominion. He handed, it, handed authority over to Satan. Yes, yes. And um, so now the rule of the cosmos is, is, a, is a coalition. It's a coalition between humanity and principalities and powers. I think the Bible absolutely... That is a theme to which the, the Bible... The prophetic books of the Old Testament yeah. and into Paul's language. It's notable how often Paul, when he's talking about salvation and Christ's triumph, he's at pains to say it's not just... It's a triumph over things visible and invisible, yeah. over dominions, rules, authorities and powers. He clearly had a much stronger sense than we do of this angelic alliance yeah. and realm. We're, we're quite... quite quite materialistic mm. and we ignore the unseen realm. Yes, which is, and, and, the, and the critical issue now is a distorted governance yeah, of the absolutely. cosmos. Yeah, it's just a distortion. So that then helped us take our focusing question a little bit sharper, um, which is not how will God forgive sins or forgive sinners, but how will God fulfill his intention that humanity will govern the cosmos on his behalf? Yeah. Um, and thus how will God defeat Satan's hold over the earth mm -hmm. via humanity um, and Satan's coup to co-op rule to himself through human beings. Yeah. Okay. That's where we got to. Talk three, uh, you introduced the big, the word we'd imply, but it's become very important, dominion. Dominion. Um, yeah. And do you want to say something about why that's so important for you? Uh, dominion... I think because we, we've had um, <clears throat> predestinations been very strongly held to, we, we've downplayed free will and we gloss over the idea of dominion. So we've, 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 we've sort of abrogated responsibility, it's all God's problem, rather than saying, no, no, we were given dominion and God takes our dominion seriously. And that, that just reframes the whole uh, problem and solution when you realise that we, <clears throat> we're intrinsic to the whole um, problem and solution. Yes, and, and I think the word dominion um, goes to the vision for humanity, that's the, the, the purpose of creation. Um, that was one of the critiques we made about yeah. the PSA model. It doesn't have anything in it around purpose. But yeah. the purpose of creation is for God to extend his presence um, into the created order via um, sub-creators, humanity as like a bridge between heaven and earth. And, and the word, quote-unquote, dominion um, is, uh, is the word that we use for that. I mean, it, and Jesus, we know, learnt obedience through suffering, right? Expressing dominion. And you, you start to have the New Testament, particularly Hebrews, open up some of those ideas. 
And you think, oh, maybe we grow into what we're supposed to, if you pick up on the infinite enlargement idea, maybe we grow into what we're supposed to be doing through our exercising our dominion. That's certainly what we're told to do. That's what the text says we're to do. So it's yes. not a big jump. But what you've just said there, I think, is um, a segue into a new way of looking at the cross, which is the nature of the dominion. Yes. It, uh, of, into the cosmos. Yep. Um, is meant to reflect God's way of ruling. Absolutely. It looks like God's way of ruling is the way of the servant. Yes. That's how he runs the cosmos. Absolutely. It looks like Jesus being incarnate, God presencing himself and going to the cross was not just a tactic to save us, but an expression of the way God runs yeah. the whole cosmos. It's a metaphysical reality. So, yeah, yeah. But, so, that, but that is completely at odds with what we consider dominion to be, which is yes. the exercise of hierarchical power. Yes, yeah. So that was talk three. Talk four I wasn't here for, but Lisa helped you through yeah, your no, Genesis 22. She helped me very well through Genesis 22. Um, because a lot of people look at Genesis 22 as the Old Testament archetype of penal substitution. So what did you say about that in summary? Look, the, the, the big idea is um, that Abraham grew up in a time where everybody offered child sacrifices and... The, the problem is, when it comes to Lot, he's happy to argue with God and say, don't, don't harm Lot, but he doesn't do that for Isaac. And so my, my hypothesis is uh, he grew up in a, in a culture where you didn't, you're not surprised when God's expected you to make a sacrifice of a, a child. And so he didn't, he didn't balk at it. And my, my hypothesis is God's not playing some mental game with Abraham to push him to the limit and see how faithful he is. And if you, if you pick up what's said in the New Testament um, in James and Paul, you, you see that there's, there's a progression where the faith of Abraham actually develops. It becomes richer. And it's not that just he understands the power of God, but he understands the character of God and the whole idea that it would have been unfamiliar to him that that. Uh, rather than a God who expects us to make sacrifice, this is a God who is radically different to the God of the other nations and he's going to make a sacrifice for us. And just trying to immerse ourselves in how difficult an idea that would be to have in that sort of world because it's, it's 180 degrees against everything you've ever been taught. And the amount of faith it took Abraham to actually trust that, that he didn't have to make a sacrifice to God it, it's just a mind-blowing moment in history. So what you've done with that, because I really like what, what you've... What I've been very helped by it, because, and you've contextualised that story um, into the ancient Near Eastern pagan world, which Abraham was part of, and his revelations of God didn't just immediately turn the light on. It was a growth. In, uh, he was evolving. He was learning. He was growing into the character of God. Absolutely. And the way God communicated with him, as anyone intelligent has to communicate with people, is to, is to sort of ground what I'm saying to some extent in the world in, you yeah, know and then right. stretch you out of it. Yeah. Uh, and the stretch out of it was, well, you're in a world of appeasing the gods <coughs> through sacrifices. Okay, I'll start with that. 
but um, that's but right. There is an absolute one hundred and eighty degree transformation yeah. that, that um, I will be um, giving rather than re expecting the sacrifice. Yeah. If you put yourself in God's shoes, how do you bring somebody who thinks that to think you're radically different? Mm. Yeah. So. Cool. The last talk we did was uh, a part of history yep. of the atonement theory. Uh, we looked at the apostolic era. Um, we looked at the, which where we essentially said what they were doing was more declaring the cross than explaining it, but they were giving us the raw material that we have to work on. And successive centuries of, of church theology has tried to do that. Uh, we looked at the patristic era, um, just glanced at them. Of course, you know, I, I certainly think they were the high point. And um, what I'd like to do in possibly the next talk is um, look more deeply at Athanasius and his, yeah. his book on the Incarnation. Um, but the one that we focused a lot on last time was Anselm, Anselm yeah. um, the medieval era, the 11th, 12th century. And I um, paid a lot of tribute to him because of the honesty, uh, humility, yeah, humility and great intelligence he used. Uh, I did make the point, he, di he, he did not read Greek, he only had Latin. Um, he was therefore influenced by Augustine, nobody else. He had no access to the Greek fathers. Um, so he didn't have a lot of resources to work on. Um, but his question um, in the dialogue with Bozo, his pupil was, by what logic or necessity did God become man and by his death restore life to the world when he could have done it another way? Oh, it's just a great question. Um, anyway, we talked that through. And of course, then the reformed era that picked up from Anselm and took his Anselm's central idea of that we affronted a lord, a magistrate, you know, he's a few, in the feudal, feudal lord. lord. Yeah. And therefore, he, the honour of the Lord was offended and that honour had to be appeased. Yeah. Uh, they took that into a judicial metaphor. Yeah. So it's very anthropomorphic, isn't it? Their experience of a feudal Lord yeah. is that their honour has to be appeased. It's probably a feudal Lord who's a narcissist and think fine. And then that is just projected onto God. That's a pretty lousy way of doing theology. And then... By the time we get to the Reformation, they, they're not convinced by the feudal lord honour model. So they, in the vehicle, which is the atonement theory, they take out that engine and put in the righteousness legal framework engine. Yes, yes. And just by an associated point, I often feel that what happens with these people is their ideas become a simplified brand. And it doesn't do justice to the flexibility of their thoughts. Yeah. I just wish people would read primary sources more because you'd find, certainly in the case of someone like Anselm, although I'd end up disagreeing with him, there's no way I can't say he wasn't very intelligent, very courageous yeah. and pious. You know, But if you put him in his context, he's doing what he can in his context. But as we've often said in gospel conversations, our job is to learn from that but not to treat that context as some kind of... Um, standard we need to keep to. There is a phenomena that the next generation wants to honour the previous generation and, and tends to hang on to what, what's said in a very simple sort of way <clears throat> that becomes unhelpful as it goes on if, if you don't go back to the first Well, I think, it's, I think it's actually 
worse than that. Um, I think it's hagiography. You know, there's something in us human beings that likes to make heroes yeah. out of people, and yeah, yeah, the heroes yeah. simplify life for us. Um, and um, so we we airbrush yeah. the uh, faults of the people or the failings, and 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 just elevate their good points. And I don't think I don't think we do them any. We do them a great disservice mm. by doing that. I mean, my favourite example of that, which I tell people a lot of, is Gandhi. Um, uh, Gandhi hated the title of Mahatma. Um, he knew he was not a special man. Um, very few people know it, but Gandhi had a volcanic temper. That's ironic. And uh, <coughs> what was the great... Who was the great actor who played him, got the Academy Award in the movie? Can't remember his ben name. Kingsley. Ben Kingsley. When Ben Kingsley was interviewed afterwards about the making of the film and what impact um, that had on him, what did he learn about Gandhi? He said he learned about Gandhi's lifelong battle with uh, temper and anger. Really? He really knew it. And so the incredible control yeah, yeah. was a reflex against this. Anyway, for. The point was, Gandhi knew he was what his strengths and weaknesses were, but everyone, it suited everyone else to make him here. Anyway, I'm off on the wrong point. Uh, we're going to talk this time. We're, gonna, we're now going to move into well, how could we get some alternative metaphors or models or paradigms mm. to um, not just balance, but probably supplant the penal substitutionary one. Which um, so. Uh, three different areas of what I want to chat about. The first is clarifying a few key terms, um, key words, um, and uh, we'll do that in a moment. Then the second would be looking at some of the uh, biblical religious metaphors yep. that you know, certainly people use. Um, and then finally, um, moving on to... Um, our suggested new range of metaphorical <coughs> range. Yeah. So, um, clarifying a few key terms. Um, let's begin with the word atonement. Ooh. I mean, it's there in yep. penal substitutionary atonement. atonement yeah. Now, the bad news is the word's not in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, the word atonement is... Uh, um, there was a there was an unfortunate translation of the authorized the King James version of uh, Romans five eleven, yeah. um, uh, as atonement, uh, which it, it, it's no longer done. Romans five eleven is translated reconciliation. Mm -hmm. The Greek word there, um, uh, katalago, is doesn't mean atonement at all. It means reconciliation. Mm -hmm. um, so Romans five eleven. I'll just read it out. Um, people can look at it. Um, this is from David Bentley Hart's translation. Uh, Though not only that, rather boasting also in God through our Lord Jesus, the anointed, through whom we have received reconciliation. So that was translated in the King James Version, atonement. through whom we received atonement. <coughs> um, so... And I mean, there is a sense in which, you know, in youth group you're always taught atonement means at one moment. 
And some people talked about atonement as if it was reconciliation. As at one level. <clears throat> but it, it, it has, when, when you're talking in the context of penal substitution atonement, it, it takes on well, not more just of that. a flavour. No, no, well, it's not just that. It, I was told the same thing, at one meant. Yeah. That is absolutely incorrect. Okay. That's absolutely incorrect. It, 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 there is no way that that etymologically the word oh, was yeah, constructed yeah, yeah, as yeah, at one right. yeah. Um, yeah. And so the word doesn't even appear uh, in the New Testament. Mm. However, by the AV sticking it there, it's, it's, what it, I think it does is it freight loads in a lot of the Old Testament uses of the That's word atonement, um, which actually, quite interestingly, the writers of the New Testament did not use yeah. very much. They used other metaphors. Yeah. So the so that's in itself. Yeah, it, it certainly is a bit of a Trojan horse. Well, it's a bit of a problem for penal substitutionary atonement. If the if the uh, the word that the third word mm. doesn't occur in the New Testament, it's not yeah. very biblical, is it? And there's another word that again, um, I don't want to throw Edwin Judge under the bus, but when he was doing a series on righteousness for us, what, eight nine years ago, mm -hmm. he talked about. Um, discoveries of the word, uh, it's hilasterion. That's right. And uh, he said they'd found fragments <coughs> and people were writing articles. I've not pursued this, but it'd be worth doing it. Um, it doesn't turn up in the New Testament more than twice, I think. And it's difficult when a word doesn't turn up very often to translate it. And it, it often got translated, I think, propitiation. That's correct. And then over time, it's got softened to... You know, there was a debate when the RSV came down whether it should be expiation, and then I think the NIV's got it as sacrifice of atonement. Um, but what, what they've realised is the usage of the word, and they haven't found many usages of it, was um, there was a city that gave a gift to Nero because he was visiting, and it had nothing to do with judgment, it had nothing to do with wrath, it was just a, a gift that didn't achieve anything. So it, it, that becomes a difficult word. Now, you, you don't win and lose the whole thing on one word, but it, it, it's interesting that as we gather more evidence, that word's not what we thought it was. Yes, so that particular other word, um, uh, hilaskamai is the verb, and that is translated uh, as propitiation, but it occurs a couple of times. Um, I think Hebrews 2.17, um, but the actual, so the actual word in the, Old Testament, and, and that word is used, I think, to translate the... Uh, in the Septuagint somewhere. In the Septuagint, that's yeah. used to translate the mercy seat. Mm -hmm. So the, the word atonement um, in the Hebrew, I'm just reading from um, Vine's book yeah. of New Testament here, the, uh, the Hebrew verb kafir is connected with kofa, a covering. So... So the, the Hebrew word, if you, were look, if you were to go back to the Hebrew word where a word that could be translated atonement is used, is actually the mercy seat or covering of the Ark of the Covenant. It's not actually the act of sacrifice. It's the, yeah. it's the place where God and man are reconciled yeah. and become one. That's, that's what it really means. So the word atonement's... Um, uh, I think done far more work than it should have been allowed to do in terms of how the writers of the, the New Testament um, wanted to use that word. They simply didn't. They used other words. And, and the big one they used was reconcile, catalasa. Yes, 
Um, and the interesting thing about the word reconcile, which is freely used amongst the Greeks, mm. um, and I'm going here from the Little and Scott, uh, obviously the great Greek dictionaries, it was actually more about um, an economic exchange. Yep. Um, an economic exchange where you would give, there'd be some exchange of money to settle a debt and you know, fix up enmity between people. Mm. Um, so insofar as it's got any sort of connotation, it's not got any connotation of criminality or um, uh, any penalty to be, be paid in a criminal sense. It's more the negotiation between aggrieved parties to bring them back together again. Yep. Um, and they don't have to be that aggrieved. I mean, well, to that point, um, yeah. to that point, uh, Vine quotes uh, the great nineteenth century. I think it was not Lightfoot was nineteenth century. Yeah. Was it? Um, oh. I think yes, he was, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, he no. was he was a really great thinker. But he writes about the word that particular word kalasa, yep. and he says um, uh, the, that. Um, the hostility in this word is represented not as on the part of God, but on the part of man. It's one way, yeah, yeah. not two way. And this is the reason why the apostle, this is Lightfoot writing, never uses dialasso, which would be mutual, mutual. hostility yeah, yeah. Um, in the connection, but always catalosso, which is yeah. one person and then the aggrieved party. While we were enemies. Well, we were enemies, not yeah. God. We yeah, were enemies right. because the former word denotes, that is dialasso, denotes mutual concession after mutual hostility, mm. that's just an idea that it's always absent from catalosso. Mm. So catalosso is one-way traffic, one party's aggrieved yeah. and not the other. So just some of the words that uh, I think are um, been overdone, been overdone and pushed too far and not understood. The other one that is um, that I wanted to mention is just broadly speaking, um, the way that in our understanding, in the Reformed understanding, um, sin became the problem mm. and original sin became the problem. This is a big, a big yeah, topic. A I don't want to go too far, but I want to mention it. Um, rather than death. Yes. Uh, whereas the, for the patristics, death was the problem um, and, the inter and the contagion between death and sin was much more mutual. Um, this... Uh, rebalancing where we put death back up as the, as the problem that's solved rather than sin, which, by the way, uh, we probably won't get onto it tonight, but I think one of the very significant chapters in the Bible, much neglected, is Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, whoever wrote it, that's their version of Romans 5, 6, 7 and 8. It is a, it is a, a huge one-paragraph explanation of salvation, and it's all about death, not sin. It's quite clear that's the problem, and dominion. But... Um, David Bentley Hart, in his uh, translation of Romans 5, verse 12, I won't go into the detail, but I just want to draw people's attention to it, translates um, this significantly differently to what uh, had been translated. Um, and he, uh, he says his translation, uh, he feels that the what he calls the notoriously defective rendering in the Latin Vulgate constituted one of the most consequential mistranslations in Christian history. So what the Latin Vulgate translates this as is, therefore, just as sin, or 
I'm paraphrasing it, entered into the world through one man and death through sin. Yep. Um, in that all sinned, right here, uh, and death pervaded all humanity, in that all sinned, was saying that um, we all sinned in Adam, whereas David translates it, therefore just as sin entered into the cosmos through one man and death through sin, so also death pervaded all humanity, whereupon all sinned. So he's sort of saying that um, rather than everybody sinning and therefore yes. death coming, death entered through Adam's sin and as a consequence of death entering, you know, corruption, yes. fallen, fallen capability, sin started to spread. Yeah. So that is a very uh, significantly uh, a different um, angle on that verse, which is putting death up as the problem, yeah. which we'll now go to if that's the problem to how is the cross a solution to the death problem, yeah. not just the sin. We could spend a lot of time on that. We could, but we, we won't. won't. <laughs> so the, the, the biblical religious metaphors, I'd like you to say a word about some of them. The first one is the sacrifice price paid one. You've got a really good point about price paid, who to, and the implications. Can you talk about that? Yeah, look, if, if, if you belong to uh, evangelical churches, you'll, you'll see a lot of the... Um, the, the, the metaphors that are used in what we sing and a lot of the sermons are all about the sacrifice, uh, ransom, price paid, um, exchange sort of idea. And I, I think that's why we, you know, we, we started off at the beginning with there's an exchange made, a payment made to Satan. There's a payment made to God. To someone. To someone. And again, that... that there, there is no exchange. There's, there's no bridge of spies where Tom Hanks walks somebody across and brings the U2 pilot back. It, it's, uh, it's one of these things where you think, have we pushed that metaphor too far? And it, it's to convey the idea that something has been paid and it was costly, but it, is there necessarily an exchange is just one of the questions we should be asking. And in general, I think we should be thinking through all the atonement metaphors and asking... Are we pushing them <coughs> too far, <coughs> trying to extract too much information from them, where the, the points that are being made are much lighter? Well, uh, let's, let's just draw that out a little bit, because I think this is quite significant. Mm -hmm. The idea of sacrifice and the idea of exchange, that makes you think there's a price paid, so therefore there's a price <coughs> paid to someone in this... And, and you've got to find someone to whom the price is paid. However, as you've just said, and I think Brad Jerzak was the first person I heard make this point quite simply, in all of our discourse, we talk about making a sacrifice, making a sacrifice yeah. which means at my cost, I helped you. Yeah. So let, let me give you an example I thought of. A house is on fire. A house is on fire. Um, I go in to rescue someone. I rescue them, but I'm, I'm, I'm burnt, and I know I'm going to get burnt if I do it, and I do get burnt. And I come out, I paid a price yeah. to help that person. I didn't pay it to anyone. It was just a sacrifice just I, a sacrifice. I had to make to help yeah. someone. And that's a completely different idea to you having to actually pay a price to someone, yeah. which, is, which, is, which is the whole um, connotational range of the penal substitution metaphor assumes. 
Yeah. So, so there was something called sacrifice, which was quite <coughs> narrow sacrifice. in its use. Yeah, but, <coughs> but even we will say, you know, HSC students make a huge sacrifice by not partying and studying for an exam. It's about it's about <coughs> denial. It's about denial of and something for no some other. No payment to anyone. If anyone, it's forward payment to self. But yeah, the, the word sacrifice can just mean a lot of cost has been paid, or a cost of some sort has been paid. Yes, yes, and. Um, that frees us to, to keep seeing the cross as it is, as uh, this vastly shocking idea yep. um, that God himself um, died for us, that God himself um, submitted to this uh, coalition of evil on our behalf. Yeah. And at, at, yeah, and and so it allows us to keep that idea of sacrifice, yeah. but no, no, nobody wants to water that idea down. Mm. Um, it's just the <clears throat> once you've got an exchange sacrifice idea in mind, it it you're pushing the metaphor too far, and it makes you make up things that don't fit with the rest of scripture. Now another one, which I think uh, we have talked about <clears throat> before, but I'd like you to just talk about again, is the judge one. Yeah. All right, a so, judge, judgment metaphor. Yeah, so there are a couple of things to tell you about judgment. Firstly, again, this is how we've got to make a call on how much do we bring from the Old Testament. A judge in the Old Testament wasn't the sort of judge we have in a courtroom. They were a judge whose job, being amongst it, was to cause reconciliation and work thing, help people to work forward to a new situation rather than just to lay down the law and work out who goes to jail and who pays. So it was much more of a, dare I say, redemptive role than a or a retrieval ethic role than a, a, a judicial role. And the word judge or judgment in scripture uh, is the word cr crisis, mm -hmm. right? And that, that, that's interesting because when we think there's going to be a judgment, we think, ah, that somebody's going to open the book, which is a, a, an expression that's used and go through the book. But what, what it, the crisis could be just simply every decision we make or have made is, is going to have, have consequences. There's going to be a reckoning where what you choose, if you choose life or you choose death, it, it, it's going to matter. And, and so to just say that that word is a crisis, which may be a judgment, but it doesn't have to be, I think opens up the idea that there's going to be a day where everything's reckoned. Yeah, so what you're again looking at is that the very idea of, let's say, God is a judge, right? Yep. Um, that Tucked in behind the penal substitution metaphor is a very harsh, pedantic a uh, guy with a wig, yeah. and there's an absolute dispassionate wig. Well, not just that. There's an objective set of laws, yeah. mi millions of pages long, actually, and he will pin you on something. So it's a very objective thing. Whereas you're saying, well, actually, the judges in the Old Testament were much more. Um, they, weren't, they were leaders who had to be conciliatory, certainly had to bring accountability, but their whole goal was to create uh, shalom and harmony and um, people had to suffer for things, but, that, but there was discernment to be made. And a lot of the laws of the Old Testament were just exemplars of wisdom, as John Walton has told us. So the word judge is, has got a very, can certainly be read with someone whose view is not retribution according to yeah. specific standards but someone whose goal is shalom absolutely um, 
and there'll be accountability, but it's towards the end of Shalom. And if you're trying to, if, if you are going to smuggle things in from the Old Testament, that's what a judge looks like. Yes, that's what a judge looks like. Well, now, um, I think we've covered the other ones, but the redemption and the, the ransom metaphor, do you want to say a word about that? Because that's actually quite a significant one, isn't it? Yeah, look, the, the, the whole redemption, ransom and reconciliation is an interesting one. Um, because they're, 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 they're financial ideas. Um, even, even reconciliation has a, a financial aspect, a marketplace aspect. And the one idea that we, we, we didn't pick on, and I think I noticed this first in um, many years ago, reading J.I. Packer's Knowing God. In the last third, he starts this little um, tirade about why don't we spend enough time um, thinking about adoption and why aren't there more PhDs written on adoption? Because that's the big idea of, of the reconciliation. So the reconciliation can be reconciling two parties, but it, it, it can just mean moving the relationship along. And when, in, at least in Roman law, if you wanted to adopt a, um, a slave or, or anybody, it, it was a, a process where you had to talk to the authorities and you had to pay a fee. So it, it sort of fits. And if I, if I was going to choose a metaphor that drove the, um, my, my theory of the atonement, rather than picking the judicial law metaphor, I'd, I'd much rather pick something that's about adoption. When I say much rather, having done the work and trying to fit it all together, I, I've come out that I, I think it's much more about adoption and fatherhood and sonship than it is about judges and law and morality at that level. Well, let's build on that one because um, the, the uh, the adoption metaphor is, is one that fits inside the dominion world. Yep, um, absolutely. So if we were now to move ourselves Having said something about those metaphors, if we're to move ourselves now to looking at, into, into a new metaphorical landscape, and the landscape is now the landscape more of dominion, dominion of the cosmos, um, and the role of humanity in yeah. that dominion, uh, then the word adoption uh, fits in there because in the New Testament, clearly adoption is something to do with Adoption to kingship, adoption to being, yeah. uh, you know, the firstborn inheritance is bound up yeah. in that word adoption. Now, the word inheritance, um, I know that I certainly used to struggle with as a younger Christian because I thought, well, does this just mean rewards or what does it mean? And I think I didn't have a good landscape to put that word in mentally. But really, I think if we put that word inheritance into what we've been saying all along about dominion, that God's created humanity to have dominion, to be yeah. kings and queens, as it were, over the cosmos. Um, that, and son, that's what we've lost. So what we regain there is, is that status of sonship. Yeah, I, I would take it a little bit further because when, when we think of inheritance, we tend to think of property rights. Yes. But 
if, if, if you're saying, well, that's, that's a metaphor, you know, all language is metaphor, what, what is the, the, the best thing that we could possibly inherit from God? It's to have his likeness, to grow fully into his likeness, right? So the great thing about our inheritance is we become more like God. And I see dominion, the reason we were given dominion was this is the playpen, the sandpit in which we learnt, as, as, you know, through suffering, how to be, how, uh, we learnt obedience. We learnt how to grow and enlarge ourselves into something that is more representative of God, that reflects God at least, to use that sort of image God better. So the, the dominion is the, is the pathway. As we exercise dominion, that's the pathway where we become more like God and can inherit uh, what he's offered to us. So, so that's good. Now, if we're in that landscape, however, we've got to put the cross back in there. That's a good idea. Um, and we've got to have a picture of the cross that, has, that fits into the dominion landscape. Yeah. So how would you do that? Okay, so, all right, so if, if you step through it, um, inheritance is more than than property, and part of it, if you go back to the idea that um, that sin is not trusting God intends good for us, there, there, there's something about being adopted into sonship which is not just about property, it's about having a relationship with God where we trust that he intends good to us. So trust and faithfulness is really at the centre of the, the whole process. Not only were we to expand, but we were to develop intimacy with God. And the key ideas, I think, become dominion, sonship, and faithfulness. So the, 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 the benefactor in this God intended sonship for an ancestor, Adam, and he proved to be unfit for adoption and sonship. So that's the mission failure. God maintained that he intended to uh, adopt us as sons and promised to do so. And the problem that God was faced with, this is where the, the cross comes in, he, God's got two competing uh, things to, to solve at the same time. One is, it is good, you know, necessary to achieve his ends, that he respects our dominion. And on the other hand, we, we've exercised, or at least Adam's exercised dominion to cut us off from God, which means death. And so here you've got God wanting to respect our dominion and us exercising that dominion to suicidally and it, it, it's how does God put that together how does God respect the dominion he's given us and always treat us as persons in his image and not not override the decision and obviously uh, enter stage left Jesus who okay, is the God well, man let's pursue that I yeah. want to put something in I do think is missing in your picture okay and that's the devil ah yes um, because the whole story of the Bible, d yeah. d domin uh, dominion is not an independent thing. And I think one of the pictures we have of humanity is we... So the game at play is the cosmos and who's going to govern it. Yep. Um, we were created, humanity was created to be God's agents of glory into mm. the cosmos. That, and that's what you've just said. So... And let's say that's sonship. That's what we're called to. Yep. Let, let's assume Adam didn't have that sonship, which I don't think he did. He had to grow into it. Let's yeah. assume that's part of the plan. Yeah. Um, let's assume he didn't trust God. 
But my point is that this is where I would read Genesis 3. He had another conversation. Yeah, he did trust someone. He did trust someone. And that, that we are never, that humanity is never presented in, in the Old Testament or the New Testament as an independent class. It's presented in collusion with principalities and powers. Absolutely. This is particular. Once you notice it in Paul, it's there everywhere. Yeah. And it's there in surprising places that a modern evangelical would never put it. Yeah. He doesn't just say in Ephesians 1 when about Christ being resurrected and that's it. No, no. He's given a name above all dominion, rule, authority, things visible and invisible. So there is this realm we swim in of principalities and powers, um, which I personally have always felt makes sense to me. Mm. I can't look at Putin. I can't look at Trump. I can't look at the collapse of America at the moment. I can't look at... Hitler, I can't look at any of these dark forces and say, oh, it's just a group of people, yeah. it's just a series of decisions some people made. There seems to be, we're swimming in something. Yeah. There's tides, they're bigger than us, yeah. which actually I love Ephesians 2 where he says about the Gentiles, you walked according to the prince of the power of the, of the air, the spirit that's now at work. So that began somewhere. I think it began in Genesis 3. Yep. And so there was an exchange rather than us seeing our dominion as being in partnership with God, we now have another partner. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so, no, no, absolutely. So and that partner is, um, he is, I was speaking to a friend of ours, sweet, wonderful man. Um, his conversion was epic. Um, he, he was, he's very Wagnerian and a brilliant, brilliant atheist. Um, he was converted to university and he saw the blood of Christ sluicing through the cosmos. <laughs> he had some LSD that helped the vision. But, <laughs> but, uh, but um, he has remained um, just a magnificent human being. And as he said to me, in my... And he starts shaking as he's talking about it. In my dealings with Satan, he said, he is adamantine that he wants to run the show and it's his to run. Mm. And I, and I think we, the pure evil of Satan, you, you see it sometimes in people and it absolutely scares you. Yes. Pure deceit, pure hatred. And when we see the words given to him are slanderer. So yeah. he runs by deceit because yeah. actually that's the Father word. Father of lies. That, uh, David often, uh, uh, in Hebrews 2, David Bentley Hart translates it slanderer. So I presume it's, that's the Greek word, which is what happens in Genesis 3. I'm going to tell you a lie, get you to believe in a lie. From the lie comes death. Yeah. Because, you know, it'd be very interesting to do a poll of a church group and say, who has the power of death? Because mm. I reckon 90% of people say, oh, God has. It's not what the Bible says. Mm. Hebrews 2 says, Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death, that is, the slanderer. <coughs> So, so that's where I'd, I'd bring him into the picture of dominion. Yep. Okay, and now I have in my mind a lot of those Daniel 7 pictures of the successive regimes that run the earth. Yep. And now we're sort of getting ready for the cross because it looks very much like in John 19, there is going to be a confrontation between the last representative of the last great empire and the man from Nazareth mm -hmm. in John 19. And there is a confrontation between the powers. Yeah. And one power is actually representative of the greatest 
military machine the world's probably ever seen, who had huge resources and we know was, was cruel beyond imagination. And Pilate himself was almost the perfect example because he was a mean-minded little middle manager who was negotiating to, for his position in life. But that's what the empires create. Mm. And on the other side, you've got a man from Nazareth with nothing. No, absolutely nothing. And who's going to win? So, so I think that confrontation yep. is, is epic. Um, and that does bring in the, um, the picture of dominion. Like, who runs the show? Who runs the show? So we didn't exercise dominion under the tutelage of God. We, start, we, we chose to do it under the well, well, and we have no choice because we, we human beings, as brilliant as we are, we're swimming in stuff. It's a yep. gift. We're, we're swimming in stuff. Our cognitive abilities, the whole world, we've received it. So we're never, ever autonomous, although we think we are. Mm -hmm. We're going to have to be in cooperation with someone. Yeah. Uh, as Bob Dylan said in one of his great songs, you've got to serve somebody. Um, so... That's all I'd add to that story. No, that's good. And I think that Dominion um, would therefore say, okay, the challenge is humanity has lost Dominion. By the way, there's, I just want to make a segue here to something that's going to come next year, which is another way of describing the loss of Dominion and entry of death is the loss of glory. Ah, yes. And I'm, I'm going to um, invite a wonderful man called David Bradshaw, who's written brilliantly on this, on the, on the um, rich theology of glory that the Eastern Church developed, which the Western Church never did. I'll come to that later. Yeah. But, but just to say, we could be talking about the loss of glory in the cosmos, which means corruptibility, death, you know, mm. the world we live in now. So therefore now the cross is the solution to that. And that's where a theory of the cross as somehow or other changing the whole system. Um, you, you know, you, a, a, a penal, a penal um, a court case isn't going to do that. No. A court case isn't going to do that. So it's much more of a victory model at that stage or metaphor, isn't it? It, it is. It's, it's a yeah. socioeconomic. It's, it, the word as we know... Uh, that we have for economy yeah. um, is much used in the theology of, of uh, it's much used in the theology of the Eastern Fathers. I don't know, haven't done a word, oikonomos. Yeah. It actually meant household, household management, but it's a word used about God. Yes. Right. Just to quickly foreshadow where I'll go, just to whet our appetite on this glory thing. The big, big word that David Bradshaw, who's Basic degree was physics before he did his PhD in philosophy. So he was interested in energy. That's the oh, word that yes. interested him, energia. Oh, yeah. Energia. Only used by Paul about 20 times. But the problem is the Vulgate had no word for energy. They translated operatio, operations, yes. which became work. Yeah. So well, when it says work, you know, God is working uh, in us to yeah, work yeah. with him. The, the Greek word is energy. Yes. And he said, we've lost the plot. We don't have the picture of energy. So how we run the show is what's at stake. So Jesus, so the cross now is a, is a transformative mechanism to regain dominion. Uh, just recently I saw reference to an article, which I haven't read, but I'll, I'll see which 
says much the same thing, that the, that word is used. I thought it said 34 times, maybe 24 times. Oh, yeah, I, I just yeah, made up just, 20. Yeah, yeah, it sounded it, a lot, so I made it up. But it, it's used more often than many other words to describe God. Yeah, and completely. And it's interesting, the, the person who wrote it, it might be the same guy. Maybe I saw Bradshaw's it, it, article. It could it be, It sounds yeah. very familiar. Yeah, it's, he's very good on it. Because he had a physics background and he had noticed that energy is used to describe God. Well, he's built a philosophy around it. It was probably the same fellow. Yeah, and, and that this word was very important to Paul. So mm. the point is work, you know, once you use the word work, quote, or energy, because what he then says is that is what is translated co-workers isn't good. Oh. So the reason that it's not, the word is synergy. Oh. Now, synergy. 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 We get synergy from it. Yeah. So rather than... The co-worker idea is, well, there's God doing his bit, here's me doing a bit. But yeah. synergy is uh, With energy. where we're, we're uh, joined at the hip much more, yeah. which I, I loved that idea. And, and so that's what, so therefore, uh, what, what I, I wrote out was some, uh, oh, we can see the cross as the operating model for the transformation of the cosmos and the regaining of dominion. That 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 because I, I want to repeat. You've said a couple of things, one thing or two, a couple of things in what you just said that people might slip over. And I want them not to do that. And what you said was this. This is a really significant one, I think. Um, both the penal substitution model and anybody else has an issue, which is it looks like God's got one hand tied behind his back. Like why didn't God? That's actually what Anselm said. Why was it necessary? Why did he have to die on the... Why couldn't he just like bang and just override the whole show, right? That's what... And and a lot of people in the street say that. Well, why does God, right? Now, the answer in the penal substitution model is he's bound by a moral code. Which is... Which is wrong. Which is wrong. But, But our answer, and I want people to be aware of this, is we are agreeing he is bound, but what you said is... He's bound by his creational mission. Yeah. And his creational mission is that he is going to express himself in a created order through human agents. Yeah. And we all know what this is like in our, in our lives. I mean, I, it was called dipping down in one of my clients. In other words, I delegate something, they mess it up, so I jump in and fix it for them. Yeah. They, don't, they never grow, they never learn. And essentially, that's what we're talking about. Is that, am I right? Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. It's, it's, I, I do think um, rather than it being a law that's out there or a, a moralness about God, there's, there's a metaphysic about how relationships work and, and that is impressed on the creation. He created the creation for Jesus to live in with his people. He created the human flesh for God, the son, to wear. And so there is a, a, a moral reality to the, the whole, being careful how I use that word moral, but there's a, a, a metaphysic that is real. It's not just uh, something that's outside God. It's, it's part of God. And he's therefore looking for a human being with whom he can have a relationship so that that human being can plug the whole of humanity into the life of God yep. and, and radiate it out to the earth. And that's what happened at the cross. It's a great story. It's a great story. Well... Um, and on that, you see, we're, we're, if you're going to test atonement theories, because they're just a the- uh, theories, they don't get capital letters, one of the things you want to test is, 
does it actually yield behaviour and thought that's more consistent with scripture? Like, do you come out loving Jesus more and more excited about following him? Or do you come away a bit more fearful about God and feeling that he's a bit, bit edgy? Because um, certainly with penal substitution atonement, if you think about it too far, God sounds like he's, he needs an apprehended violence order. He's well, he does, and, 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 and most people behave that way. Yeah. They're, they're really, it, it, the subliminal effect is, uh, is there whether it's conscious or not. Yeah, and it, it makes it easier to Whereas bomb a, populations I, I, when you've got a God like that. Well, and colonialism and a lot of things. Yeah. Whereas a God who always intended that humanity would share, be included uh, in glory in the cosmos mm -hmm. is, and, and will get his way is, is very, very different. So, um, yes, well, that, I think, is um, a good place to uh, probably draw ourselves to. A, yeah. I, I had an analogy which I wanted to share. It's, it's entirely off the, off the wall. Um, really? Yeah, it's, it's not relevant to anything we've said, but I thought about this afternoon and I thought I'd like to share it. As a way of finishing, <laughs> it's, it's very into metaphor. Yeah, very into metaphor. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's 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 sort of like why is a death necessary? Oh yeah. Why, why is a death? I mean, we could say a lot about that, yeah. I'm sure. But you know, why is death necessary? And this is actually a a, a really powerful story about why uh, a death is necessary and how it's the prelude to life. Um comes out of my um, and it's also I like the model because it's a it, the analogy is quite sophisticated the more you go into it and it's quite um, cosmic it's, it's, it's about a system not an individual the system's the cardiovascular system your heart mm -hmm. my heart and we all know about defibrillators and and if our, one of our colleagues Lorraine Holly was here she would tell us all about it because I learned all this from Lorraine who was um, the prime researcher in Australia in developing the defibrillator. Oh, wow. Yes. So, um, and this is what happens when you have uh, what's called a sudden death heart attack. The way that uh, the heart works is that the heart works by energy, right? Only in the last few decades have, have people begun to look at the heart as an electrical system. So in other words, we have the uh, four chambers of the heart and there's an electrical system that's flowing through it and the electrical system is stimulating the muscles to contract. So it's a four-chamber, incredible four-chamber syncopated system, you know, mm -hmm. where at the top of the left atrium, that's where... Uh, all, now, the way that when we say it's electrical, what that simply means is there's an energy wave that, that passes through the cells. Right. And the cell walls are permeable. Yep and they have an imbalance of negative and positive ions on either side, which are in imbalance, and they rush in and out, in and out, in and out, and that's what's causing the pulse. Wow. Right. Um, now, every single cell in the heart is neutral in that it transmit. It needs energy to be transmitted. Mm. One of the uh, amazing... Um, I don't think anyone can explain it. For some reason, there is a tiny... So the question is, where does the heartbeat start if they're all neutral? Yeah. The answer is the sinus node. There's a tiny cluster of cells in the left atrium. When a baby is born, and before they're born, 
that has the capacity of self-beating at 72 beats a minute, or thereabouts. It's, they are the self-beating cells. They're, they're tiny. And from them radiates out these waves. And the, the waves get modulated by all the structure of the heart so that it, it, they don't go out all at once. It's, it's an incredible system. This is what's happening. Every Since I've begun to tell this story probably about 15 times in my heart and yours. Yeah. So it's a beautiful orchestrated system. It's a cosmos. Mm. It's an order. And yep. it's functional. And it makes everything work. What actually um, happens in a heart attack or this kind of heart attack is sometimes some of the cells, as we get older, they get ischemic and so they don't transmit the waves. And they build up like little scar tissue. And if you can, the mental image is if you've ever seen waves at a beach and they're hitting uh, the rocks and they start back, backing on themselves and it becomes turbulent. So, so these little clusters repel the waves and the waves go backwards. That's sort of okay for a while, but at a certain tipping point, the backflow yep. overtakes everything and the whole heart starts to quiver and the sinus nose lost control. Wow. And when the whole heart, that's called, you've got three minutes to live. When that, that's what's a sudden death heart mm. attack. And the reason that they for years couldn't work out what's happening, you die on the street, but the autopsy won't show why. Yep. But this was this. The, so when that happens, when that happens, um, your heart will quiver. So it, it's, it's not beating anymore. It's fibrillating, quivering. So the system is there with all the energies absolutely screwed up and you're going to die. There's only one way to stop it. And that is death, which is I stop all the waves. All and that's what waves. a defibrillator does. Yeah. A defibrillator is I'll pass a massive electric shock across the entire heart. Now the result of that is, as that shock goes through, it's so powerful, yeah. it overrides all the quivering, yeah. and in its, behind it is silence. As, as Lorraine said to me, imagine you've got a child who's like panicking and you slap them, just to shock them so that yeah. They're quiet, and then you can do something. Well, if you're rescuing someone in the surf, you, know, you yeah. hit them, stop them panicking. So, so what happens is the huge sh shock wave by the defibrillator brings stillness or total death, no energy. Yeah. And in that stillness, the sinus node reasserts itself and gets going again. That's beautiful. So... Yeah. If you want to take that as an analogy, um, uh, there's been a backflow of sin that's led the sinus node, so the cosmos is now quivering and out of shape. The only way to stop it is slap it across and <laughs> kill it. And that's, that's a big slap. And then life can reassert itself. So I thought that was an analogy that yeah. I... And if, you, if you're going to think about something... No, it's not in the Bible, by the way. Really? It sounded so close. The, um, it, it'd be worth... Um, as you're reading your Bible before we get together again, to, to think through that process where at, at one point there was the anthropomorphic engine put in the, the, the atonement vehicle, which was God's a feudal Lord who needs honour, got replaced with some idea of righteousness and law. And what we're suggesting is, no, that, that legal engine probably wasn't the best engine to put in it. If we actually did the work in going through the metaphors... We, we would probably come up with adoption, dominion, sonship, 
and and something that's that's taking us from the creation yeah, to where we're supposed to be in relationship. So it's a relationship metaphor. Well, it's a relationship engine rather than a. Well, I think it's a, and a dominion engine. So the relationship with God for cosmic influence and dominion. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, that, that's a quivering heart. It's and, out of control. And that, that's, that's, we've got to keep on saying dominion because I, I think being from a reform background, we play down dominion at the, because we play up the sovereignty of God rather than say that God in his sovereignty has given us dominion and it's a lost idea. Well, I think we should do that because then, and we can make this our kind of intriguing last point, the whole point is that the, the nut... The cross shows the nature of God's dominion is service yes. and self-denial. Absolutely. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Um, See you next month. Yeah, we will.